The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Barry's Verluga from the Washington Post will be on the show today. Barry's going to be on the show because he wrote a column this morning that made the case that Terry McLaurin is the best receiver this franchise has had in 30 years since it had Art Monk and Gary Clark. Uh, He'll be on with us. uh, By the way, speaking of 30 years ago, we will do a 1991 look back to 30 years ago today when Washington lost for the first time in their 1991 Super Bowl season. Barry's on the show today because he wrote a really good column, which I will uh, wait uh, until I talk to Barry to let you know whether or not I agree with Barry's premise about Terry McLaurin so far. Clinton Portis was scheduled to be on the show today. He's got some travel issues trying to get where he's headed for Thanksgiving, um, and he promised that he would be available to do the show on Friday. For those of you that have asked about Cooley, who hasn't been on the show in like two weeks, his high school football season did end in the first round of the playoffs. I think they lost 14-10. to 10. Um, and I talked to him, um, you know, and I talked to him all the time. Bottom line is he'll, he's going to come on. He will be on you know, who knows, maybe Friday uh, as well. He's just not watching football that much. He's not paying attention to our team. He's not paying attention to much of anything um, in the league. Uh, But um, that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy the conversations with him uh, and the discussion. But uh, he'll be on soon, and I appreciate all of you um, who have been asking about him, and so does he. I wanted to start the show with this. Do you know that Washington is in position by the late hours of Monday night um, to be in the seventh spot in the NFC playoff standings. They are literally less than a week away from being in the playoffs. I mean, in terms of the current standings. And it's not that much of a long shot for that to happen. Now, I know I promised no playoff scenarios, uh, because I don't think they're a very good team. But two wins in a row have put them in a position in the NFC that is more than just in the conversation. Again, it's not that far of a reach where they could be in the postseason as the seventh team, the third wildcard team, by the end of Monday night. Let me walk you through it. First of all, as it relates to Washington's game against Seattle, Washington is now favored. They opened up curiously as a 
two-and-a-half-point underdog. I didn't think that that was curious a week ago, but after Seattle put on the performance they did against the Cardinals and Washington beat Carolina, I actually thought then this is a pick or Washington's like a, a one- or a two-point favorite in the Monday night game. Well, they opened it plus two-and-a-half, a, a two-and-a-half-point underdog, and I predicted on Monday that this line would move in Washington's direction, and it has. They are now a one-point favorite. They're a one-point favorite because sharp bettors are betting Washington. Why are they betting Washington? Well, some of it has to do with Washington, but more of it has to do with Seattle. Seattle has lost five of its last six games – They've lost two in a row to the Packers and the Cardinals, the Cardinals without Kyler Murray or DeAndre Hopkins or Chase Edmonds, where they've managed in the last two games to be shut out by the Packers and to score only 13 points against the Cardinals. They're in free fall. We are probably heading towards the end of the Pete Carroll-Russell Wilson era in Seattle. It's been a hell of a run for these guys in Seattle, going back to 2012. But it looks like it's heading towards an end, or at least that's the perception of the odds makers. They think Seattle is about to pack it in. I don't know if that's true or not. The NFL is impossible to figure out. We talk about this all the time. Just when you least expect it, expect it. Um, And Washington's not a six-point favorite. They're a one-point favorite right now. It might still keep climbing. But this is a winnable game on Monday night. They're now favored to win the game. The Thanksgiving Day game tomorrow night between the Saints and the Bills, the Saints have half of their team out due to injury. Buffalo's now a six-point favorite, despite Buffalo playing pretty poorly recently. You know, getting blown out by the Colts two weeks ago, losing to Jacksonville. The Bills are six-point favorites tomorrow night in the Superdome. If they win that game, the Saints are five and six. That would be if Washington wins the game, Washington is 5-6. and six. The Panthers um, are also right now 5-6. and six. They haven't had their bye week yet. They play the Dolphins where they are just one-and-a-half-point favorites in Miami, a Dolphins team that's played really well recently. The Dolphins beat the Jets last week. I understand that, but remember, they beat the Ravens in that Thursday night game. They've won three in a row. They're playing pretty well, and they are excellent defensively. Excellent defensively. Going to be a tough afternoon for Cam and the Carolina offense. It's in Miami. What if Carolina loses that game? Well, they would drop to 5-7. and seven. It's a winnable game for Miami and a losable game for Carolina. The Eagles are sitting there at 5-6. and six. They haven't had their bye week either. They're playing in New York in the Meadowlands against the Giants. They fired Jason Garrett. Boy, I mean, that – I'm – We talked about that game, I think, on the podcast yesterday. That was one of the worst offensive performances by any team I've seen all year and just a dreadful performance by Daniel Jones. Like one of those definitive games where if you're a Giant fan, you're like, nope, not him. It's not Daniel Jones. And if you watched what they did offensively, nope, it can't be Jason Garrett anymore. And they fired him. The Giants, by the way, just as an aside – since firing Coughlin, you've had the bad haircut dude, McAdoo. You had Shermer, and you've got Joe Judge. That franchise, from a football standpoint, is almost and maybe even worse than Washington. Now, organizationally, they're better, even though we can't stand the Maras. Uh, but um, football-wise, my God, 
Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin was a hell of a football coach. Anyway, uh, could the Giants rise up as three-and-a-half-point home dogs and beat the Eagles? It's possible. Keep the Eagles from getting to 500? Anything's possible. I can tell you the Giants will probably be a smell test pick. The whole world's on Philadelphia laying three-and-a-half. I like the Eagles. I think they're a good team right now. I, I really do. But if the Eagles lost, they would fall to five and seven. Uh, Atlanta is sitting there with the same record as Washington. They play Jacksonville on the road. That game's a pick 'em. It's a pick 'em. Even if they do win to get to five and six, Washington would be ahead of them because of conference record. Uh, but then you get the Minnesota-San Francisco matchup between two five and five teams. So one of them is going to end up being the six seed behind, say, the Rams as the five seed by Monday night. And then the loser will drop to five and six. And either one of the teams that loses it doesn't matter. Either one of those two teams will have a worse record in the conference than Washington's, which means Washington with a win would be ahead of them in the standings on tiebreaker procedures. So I just gave you the Saints losing, the Panthers losing, the Eagles potentially losing, that would be a bit bit of an upset, you know, the uh, out of all of them that seems the least likely, but uh, it sort of fits, you know, the contrarian handicapping um theory. Uh Atlanta losing and then it doesn't matter who loses between Minnesota and San Francisco. If those things happen and Washington beats Seattle, the playoff picture will be on Monday night. The four division leaders, Cowboys, Packers, Buccaneers, Cardinals, the five seed would be the Rams. The six seed would be the winner of the Minnesota-San Francisco game. And the seventh seed would be Washington based on winning tiebreaker scenarios against the other five and six teams. There you go. There's your playoff scenario talk here heading into week 12 of the NFL. By the way, if you're looking ahead um, to Washington games and wondering uh, whether or not, if you knew this, you may not have known this anyway. Washington, Philadelphia, uh, the weekend of the 18th and 19th of December was a possibility to get moved to a Saturday game. Uh, this happened with them a couple of years ago when they when they played Tennessee on a Saturday. The NFL leaves that open until. Um, later in the season, like yesterday, to decide on which games they want moved to Saturday national TV games on December 18th. Washington did not get moved. So their game with Philadelphia is Sunday, December 19th at 1 p.m. This is the game in Philadelphia against the Eagles. The two games that got moved are the Raiders and Browns, and then the night game, the primetime game, is Colts-Patriots, which led me to realizing something that I did not realize until early this morning. Did you know that the Patriots are in first place in the AFC East? They're in first place in the AFC East. Really quite remarkable what the Patriots have done. They play the Titans this week, and they are six-and-a-half-point favorites in Foxborough over Tennessee after winning five games in a row by an average of 35 to 10. Somebody asked me, um, well, my producer asked me this morning, you know, I think we talked about it maybe with Scott too on the podcast two days ago. Um, 
what's who are the best teams in the league? Well, right now in the AFC, that point spread over Tennessee is telling you that New England is certainly in the conversation as the best team in the AFC. I think that Kansas City's back to being the favorite, perhaps, along with you know, Kansas City probably the favorite. I haven't looked at it. I can check in on my bookie right now in terms of AFC championship um, odds. I'm going to guess after last weekend that Kansas City is now the favorite if Buffalo still isn't. But Buffalo's not even in first place. Yeah, Kansas City right now is the favorite in the AFC at plus 275 to go to the Super Bowl. Buffalo is second at plus 330. The Ravens are at plus 480, and then the Patriots are the fourth pick right now at plus 500. I think the Chargers are dangerous. Um, As long as I'm here, what about the NFC NFC championship odds? Because it's hard to pick who's the best team in the NFC. Right now, the Bucs are the favorite. The Rams and Cardinals are essentially tied for the second favorite. Then it's Green Bay, Dallas, San Francisco, Minnesota in that order for the NFC Championship. So there you go. By the way, other Washington football team discussion real quickly. DeAndre Carter is the leading vote getter for the return specialist in the Pro Bowl. Uh, John Allen is third among defensive tackles behind Aaron Donald and Jeffrey Simmons. Now, Jeffrey Simmons is an AFC player. So as of now, John Allen and DeAndre Carter would be your pro bowlers. Actually, one more. Cameron Cheeseman, their long snapper, is also near the top of vote getters for long snappers. Go figure. I had no idea. Uh, Does Washington have any other possibilities? Well, yeah, Terry McLaurin, for sure. Uh, But that would probably be it. I guess Brandon Sheriff, even with the missed games, is going to be in the conversation. But that would probably be it. Tressway. There you go. Did we just nail it? Tressway, DeAndre Carter, Cameron Cheeseman. And then John, John Allen's a lock to be a pro bowler. I don't think anybody else defensively Deron Payne or Matt Ioannidis are going to have a shot at the Pro Bowl. Obviously, neither one of the two defensive ends are going to be in the Pro Bowl. Nobody at linebacker, nobody in the secondary. You go to offense, and it's McLaurin, and it is, you know, maybe just based on reputation, Brandon Sheriff. That would probably be the list of potential Pro Bowlers off of their team. Unless, of course, number four lights it up over the final seven games. And that's the last thing I want to mention here in the opening segment before we get to Barry's Verluga. Uh, Tommy and I spent a lot of time talking about Taylor Heineke yesterday, and you can go back and listen to a lot of it, and we discussed some of the things that Ron Rivera said about Taylor Heineke. Um, I'm going to talk to Barry's Verluga about Taylor Heineke as well. I want to emphasize one point that uh, we brought up yesterday that I just have, have thought more about, and I think... Um, it's really important because, first of all, Rivera has, has essentially said here this week and in recent weeks, he doesn't have to have an answer on this. They're exploring everything. They're going to explore all the quarterbacks in the draft. They're going to explore all the quarterbacks in free agency. They're going to explore what they have. And they get seven more games this year you know, to you know, evaluate Taylor Heineke. And that's really the evaluation now, right? It's not Kyle Allen 
anymore. It's Taylor Heineke. I guess we could be back two weeks from now if they play poorly and they're then officially at four and eight kind of done. Um, uh, they maybe the Kyle Allen conversation surfaces. I mean, Rivera implied to me on the show in his weekly appearance two weeks ago that he was intrigued by the possibility of playing Kyle Allen. So I think before that Tampa game, it was in play that Kyle Allen was going to get some opportunities. But I, I think after the last two weeks, that ship for the time being has sailed. And it's really about Taylor Heineke and evaluating Taylor Heineke while evaluating all the college quarterbacks, while evaluating all of the veteran quarterbacks that may or may not be available. I I mentioned this yesterday more in passing, but I think it's really important. It's very possible that Washington will evaluate other quarterbacks and aim higher than Taylor Heineke and believe internally that he's not totally the answer or they're not sure, but not be able to do anything about it. You know, you can be aggressive and not land guys. In free agency, Matt Ryan, if Atlanta cuts him, and there may be a compelling reason for them to do so because of a huge, you know, cap savings if they were to cut him after the 2021 season, I personally think Matt Ryan's still playing at a pretty high level. You know, no Calvin Ridley and no Corderell Patterson, I think, the, in, in recent weeks has really hurt. But I think Matt Ryan can still play. You heard what Jay Gruden said about Matt Ryan when he was on with me a week ago Saturday. Matt Ryan, he said, oh, absolutely Matt Ryan. I think a lot of people feel that way about Matt Ryan in the sport, you know, offensive guys. They know he can play even though he's on the verge of turning 38 years old. But Matt Ryan is a free agent more likely than not isn't coming here. The free agent possibilities really are guys like Teddy Bridgewater, Tyrod Taylor, Mitch Trubisky, Marcus Mariota, and then maybe, you know, a guy like Jameis Winston. I don't know what's going to happen to him. Obviously, he was injured. He's done for the year. I guess somebody like Cam Newton could all of a sudden be available. Um... So there's not going to be a lot of places to turn for an obvious replacement for Heineke. If Heineke plays well enough, I'm talking about the, you know if he plays just well enough for this debate among all of us, and maybe a debate internally among them, continues on him. You 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 sign a Mitch Trubisky in the off season. I think that's a a training camp competition. May the best man win between Trubisky and Taylor Heineke. It wasn't last summer because Taylor Heineke had only played one game. Now he's going to play 16 and a half games. And if he plays more games like he played on Sunday and you go the free agent route, well, it's more of a competition. You have not come up with an answer to replace Taylor Heineke or to move on from him being a possibility of being your quarterback next year. I'm talking about next year now. The trade guys, you know, the, the Watsons, the Rodgers, the Wilsons, they've all made it clear. They're not coming here. So then you have the draft, where somebody who gets drafted doesn't have a choice whether or not they're coming here. And by all accounts, if you believe you know, the people who do this for a living, this is not an impressive quarterback draft. So what will their evaluations be of the quarterbacks? Will they fall in love with Kenny Pickett or Matt Corral or Malik Willis or Carson Strong? 
and will they draft their their the quarterback of their future and then you have you know a training camp battle to see if the young guy's ready to go or not i'm driving towards this taylor heineke by default might be back with a chance to start in 2022 and it may not mean that they believe he is truly the quarterback of the future it might mean he's the best solution if we can put and keep improving around him and give us a chance to be competitive in games and win more than we lose. Maybe not, you know, win Super Bowls or contend for Super Bowls, as Ron Rivera said in that quote, you know, he's not a Hall of Famer. You know, they don't see that in him. Uh, But if you really start contemplating the solutions when the season ends, they may be limited. You can evaluate until your heart's content. You can aim higher and believe that you have to aim higher. It doesn't mean that you're going, to, you're going to land the guy. They couldn't land Stafford. They couldn't land, you know, anybody else that they may have been thinking about. They didn't, you know, decide to move on Trubisky before the trade deadline. They didn't trade up in the draft to take Justin Fields. So, there you go. Barry's Verluga when we come back right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis. Analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Barry's Verluga is joining us on the podcast, and I asked Barry to come on, not just because of the column that he just wrote, which I mentioned in the open of the podcast today, 
but because I love talking to Barry about lots of different things. And by the way, I was thinking about you because you and I, I think when it comes to sports, have real similar interests, you know, in terms of our passions when it comes to sports. College basketball, obviously, being one of them. Now, I think you really love baseball, and I love baseball too, not not to the level that you do. But but where does this week, this holiday week, rank for you in terms of sports weeks or weekends of the year? I mean, I think it's behind some of the, like, early October big time football when and you know I'll reveal myself with the baseball playoffs going. Um, I like that college hoops is kind of hitting its stride here, but to me, that doesn't really happen until those great conference games get going. You'll get the odd matchup, you know, like you had last night, um, and uh, there are some prominent um, college hoop games that that I'd get really really into. But I'll take that mesh of the baseball playoffs. And um, and the early part of football season, and then I would also probably throw in the the confluence of the Final Four yeah. leading into Masters Week being right around the opening day. Yeah. I, I, that's that's just so good. That's so good. The only thing about the Final Four for me is it's anticlimactic. Like it's the other part of the tournament. The first two weekends of the tournament are really, because of the volume of games, it's just so great, you know, um, or the first weekend, really, you know, the, fir- the, the first round, the second round, all of those games. I think when we, and then the second weekend with the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, I think it's almost like Championship Sunday in the NFL for me. I think it's anticlimactic. Like, we've we've gotten, we, there isn't like a, 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 buffet of games all day long. You know what I mean? Like I love the NFL playoffs. I think the wild card weekend now is great with six games in total. And now one of them is going to move to Monday night. I think the the first weekend of the tournament's great, but there's something about this week surrounding a holiday that I love too. um, That makes it nice. Just out of curiosity, did you stay up and watch Gonzaga UCLA last night? I didn't. I bailed. I'm sorry. That's it's a, personal failing and i i, sh- I should have followed that through <laughs> this guy um uh, the the freshman center for um for gonzaga the big seven footer from minneapolis yep um is uh, uh, uh why am i blanking uh, chet holmgren um he right. got, he has first of all he's seven feet barry and he's like 190 pounds soaking wet i've never seen somebody that tall and that skinny for starters but my God, is he so skilled? I mean, he and, can, he can shoot it, he can handle it. He's he's going to be an unbelievable player. They just have become a national program. I mean, they get guys like that. If you're if you're um, the coach at the University of Minnesota and that kid grows up in in your town uh, in your state and and you can't get him, you have no chance because a national brand is swooping in. Um, that says something about who Mark Few and Gonzaga has become. And I'll, I'll just say one thing broadly about college hoops, Kevin, since you've led me down this road. Um, I, I have a column running, I guess it'll run tomorrow, when Maryland plays in the Bahamas on Thanksgiving, um, about the nature of the sport now and Maryland being kind of a microcosm of it. They have um, five pretty prominent transfers, uh, you know, their starting point, point guard played four years at Rhode Island. They, their starting center played um, at Georgetown. The uh, 1,068 kids 
transferred from Division One school to Division One school between the end of wow. last year and, and the beginning of this year, and that affects every every program. So, um, you think it's hard to follow college basketball because of the one and done? It's harder now with transfers, and I'm all for the players' rights, and I don't think that they should be have to sit out a year if their coach wouldn't have to sit out a year when they um, leave for another job. But it's an interesting wrinkle and a feel to trying to figure out who exactly is playing for who um, in college basketball nowadays. I totally agree. I didn't realize it was 1,068. I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, I think that that's right, and I think it also makes it much harder early in a season to figure out who's good and who isn't because when you have all the incoming freshmen – more times than not, incoming freshmen aren't going to make the difference that a you know a, a, an older transfer is going to make. So in trying to figure out which teams are really good and which aren't um, is interesting. Look, I, I think we've had this conversation before. College basketball, which was something that you and I both loved dearly and we loved it this time of year. We loved it in the conference season and, you know, March was the capper. It's become, for most people, a March sport, a one-month tournament sport. With that said, for whatever reason, this first two weeks, two and a half weeks, we've had a home game at Pauley between UCLA and Villanova, which was phenomenal. Um, We had Gonzaga, Texas with a home court thing. I think if we could get more of these big-time matchups on home courts and not these neutral court, you know, Thanksgiving week games, which are great, and it's kind of part of the, the week's tradition, um, but I loved I loved the UCLA Villanova game from a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, I thought that was great. And Gonzaga, by the way, the schedule they they've played Texas, they've played UCLA, they play your team Friday night, um, they play Duke on Friday night, then they play Alabama. I mean, th- there is going to be no doubt about how tested they are early in the season. Uh, and then they've got to play their, of course, shitty conference season um, before we get them again in the tournament. But uh, what a, what a non-con schedule. I mean, number five, number two, number four, and number ten in the country for them. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, do you want to you, – well, as long as we're diving down this real quickly – you know that losing to George Mason for Mark Turgeon is not a good thing. You have a really good feel, and you've gotten a good feel over a long period of time as an ACC guy what Maryland's fan base is like, and they're all over them again. And I, you know, I keep telling everybody, how the hell do we know it's November? Coach Thompson once told me the most meaning, meaningless thing is college basketball results in November, to which my answer to him in our bullpen at the radio station was, well, that's because you played St. Leo and Hawaii Hilo every year. Um, but, and, and he laughed, but he said, no, you just teams change so much year to year, and you can't figure it out, and these coaches don't figure it out until the conference schedule starts. But what do you think about – Maryland, and once again, just because of one November loss, you know, the Maryland fan base all over Turgeon. Well, and, and not only that loss, but then a, a narrow escape in the next Hofstra. game, um, too, against Hofstra. So um, I think both sides can be right, Kevin. I mean, um, Mark Turgeon is in a position in with his own fan base that he is judged and scrutinized at, at every turn. Every result matters um, because, for whatever reason, he has not in, you know, developed a kind of confidence in 
whether it's his game day uh, coaching, in-game coaching, or whether it's his you know roster construction. It is his program. It has been his program. And I think, I mean, if you go back to the, the loss in the NCAA tournament to Alabama, um, that I, that left like a, a, a feel that was, it's just not palatable if you're, you're Maryland. Maryland, under Mark Turgeon, has not done that kind of, we're outclassing you because we are better to, to many other programs. All these wins, even in, in you know, their best seasons, are kind of grinded out. And, and it felt, I remember thinking after the Alabama game, um, that's, Maryland should be able to do that to other teams in the NCAA tournament from time to time. It doesn't have to be every year. You don't, you, you don't realistically make the Sweet 16 every year. Um, but there's a, a kind of a, a feel to the program that, and I may have put this to you this way to, to you at some point in the past, um, a Maryland fan that I know said um, about Turgeon, um, it feels like you're dating a girl you know you don't want to marry. Um, and that's like, it, it's kind of, that's where it's kind of settled with him. So it's, it's tough if you're Mark Turgeon, you feel like you do, you've put your all into this, you have some good results, um, and you're still in November judged uh, on, on a loss to a George Mason team that, that may end up being pretty good and, and with a, a young coach that, that may end up being pretty good too. So he, he's, in a, he's in a tough spot, um, but it is his, you know, it's his program. Um, there's no one else to answer for it. What do you think from um, a close distance but not as close as I am in terms of, you know, being involved, uh, you know, as a massive, uh, you know, fan alum, the whole thing, how what do you think of our fan base? You're you're Dukey, all right, for those that don't know. All right, Barry went to Duke. Um it's it's a big love of his Duke basketball. So he's been there for all of those games in Maryland and the ACC and he understands the fan base to a certain degree. What do you think of us? Do you think we're delusional on what we are or what we think we are? Well, I mean, one I would say uh, Yes. Okay. So fine. I, I I did go to Duke. I, I covered the two schools I covered as a beat writer were North Carolina uh, and and Maryland under Gary Williams. So it wasn't like I could go and um, paint my face blue and white and, <laughs> yeah, and well, cover okay. these games. I, you, know, you had to get that you that part well, of it. Fe- out. Feinstein would have sent you a long email if that had happened. Right. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> I, I think that um, Maryland's fan base is uh, it's. And you'll you'll hate me for saying this. I mean, when I worked in Raleigh, there's very similar elements to the NC State fan base. Yes. That fan base won two national championships: one in '74 with David Thompson, and one in '83 with Jim Balvano. Maryland under Gary won a national championship and went to another Final Four, and had other teams that were capable of doing the same. So it's very natural for a fan base to say, "Hey, we've done that before." Why can't this guy do it again? When, in, in fact, a million things have to go right for a uh, program like Maryland or NC State um, to, to win a national title. I also think it's, um, it's possible for Maryland to look across the nation's capital and in, over to Charlottesville and say, hey, that guy has his program as a number one seed multiple times in 
won a national title at, at Virginia. Um, why don't we have a person like that? So, well, I do think it's kind of crazy that Mark Turgeon is subjected to, you know, the level of criticism he is for one loss to George Mason in November. I also understand that the standard is not something that this program hasn't attained before. Um, so why can't the person who's in the chair now do what Gary did? And I also, I also, you know, I mean, if we had Gary on the program right now, it was not always, you know, roses and sugar plums for, for him. I mean, he, he battled the fan base, um, from time to time before Oh one and Oh two. So, um, it's it's an interesting. I'm not. I'm. I don't think it's a bad fan base at all. I I I, I like it, kind of passion. But I, I and I do understand, you know, where they're coming from because because the heights that they would like to reach have been reached in College Park before. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the NC State comparison. I've done that before. The Herb Sundek went to like five or six NCAA tournaments in a 10-year period, and they haven't been to, to, to that number in aggregate over the last 15 years since they ran them. Um, and I think sometimes, and this has been my defense of Turgeon, I, I know that Mark is a good coach. You know, um, I, every coach will tell you that. You know, coaches in the Big Ten will tell you that. Coaches in the area will tell you he can coach. With that said, the results in March haven't been good enough. It's a shame that he didn't get that chance in 2020 with his best team because maybe the conversation that we're having right now we wouldn't be having at all. Uh, but it's also possible that if they'd gone out early in 2020, he might not even be here right now. Um, but anyway, uh, let's move on to, to the things that I think uh, most people who are listening want us to talk about, and that is your column. Uh, Barry wrote a column, which I would urge you to read. Washington has waited 30 years for a receiver like Terry McLaurin. Make the case that Terry McLaurin's the best receiver this organization's had since Art Monk. So... I was talking in the press box on in Carolina on Sunday with like JP Finley and Ben Standig of the athletic and Mitch Titchler from NBC sports. Washington was there. Um, and Terry had made the, the catch down the sideline in the first half. That's kind of typical of him, you know, a contested ball. He adjusts in the air and just doing things that not a lot of people do. And it came up, well, is he the best Washington receiver? This century, and the, really the contenders, I think there are three contenders this this century, and they would be Santana Moss, Deshaun Jackson, and Pierre Garçon. And to me, Santana's the easiest as the best um, of those three because it's, that's ten seasons he played with so many bad quarterbacks and so much through so much bad offensive football, and he just showed up with the professionalism and uh, a work ethic and. Um, and he produced to, despite, you know, not really ever being in a, a, a great offense. Um, Garcon was, you know, established as uh, a security blanket for, for Peyton Manning by the time he got here. He, he doesn't strike. He, his numbers were good while he was here and he was their best receiver while he was here. But, but he, he didn't strike me ever as a guy you had to game plan for. He, he, he got, he did his job, um, but he wasn't explosive. Deshaun is the guy you say, okay, that's a guy that you, if the other coaches have to say, we're aware of wherever he is at all, at all times. Um, I think the, the knock against him would be 
not that he was a one-trick pony, but he, he did miss nine games yeah. in his three seasons here, so he wasn't always available. Um, and he, he, you know, he didn't have the production underneath, even if he was, he was hitting the home run um, ball. So, so Terry McLaurin is right now 39 games into his Washington career. If you take all the receivers since Art Monk and Ricky Sanders and, and Gary Clark, um, they were all done by 93 here. He is averaging more receptions per or as many receptions per game as Garcon in 5.1, more yards per game than anybody, including Jackson, uh, including Santana, uh, and more touchdowns per game during that time. And then I think viscerally, you, you watch him, and he's just he makes plays in traffic. I think the touchdown catch on on Sunday, where he was just being mauled. Yeah, right. um, a lot of guys don't make that play. I mean, he drew the penalty and made the catch. Um, I just feel like there's such an upside for him that he's just getting started. That he's played for seven with seven starting quarterbacks already. And if he, whether it's Heineke or somebody else, finds a quarterback that is there for the long haul there's not a lot of limits on on what he can do not not because you know he can beat you downfield um three times a game but because he makes all the catches in all sorts of circumstances that's a fairly long-winded answer as to why i think he's the best in the month yeah i i read your column this morning after the radio show and i thought about it um and i agreed with you I think that that's tr- I think it's true. Now, I do think because you included some tight ends um, into the statistical, you know, look back over, you know, as pass catchers. I personally feel like Jordan Reed's one of the great what ifs um, in franchise history. I think that first of all, he had a quarterback for a few years there um, with with Cousins, and if he didn't have the injury, is- you know, issue, the concussion issue. I think he would have been, um, it's very possible he would have been the greatest tight end in franchise history uh, and one of the great uh, numbers accumulators in terms of pass receptions and yards in franchise history. But I think you're right about Terry McLaurin. And, you know, I hope it doesn't end up being like an Allen Robinson situation. And there have been a couple of others where they don't have a quarterback answer for a significant portion of his career because we met, we might. We may realize how good he is, like people have always understood about Robinson in Chicago as an example. But maybe the you know the the, the he won't uh, he won't get to the numbers that some of the great all time you know receivers will get to. I think right now he's right there as a top ten receiver in the league, Barry. And Washington hasn't had that in a long time, even with Deshaun and Pierre. I mean, they were they were 15-plus, you know, and Deshaun's availability was the biggest issue. But he is now right there in year three um, as almost a top-10 receiver. You can make that case in the league right now. Right, and that's with, you know, a, a revolving door at quarterback right. that, that probably is not over. Um, I, I just – I think – Again, there's a, there's the statistical argument, um, which there's a really good graphic that ran with the column that shows everybody since um, Monk that the, the Washington receivers with the most yards right. uh, since Monk and, and Terry leads across the board. And then I, you know, say okay, so say Heineke's his quarterback for 
um, the next three years. And I'm not arguing that that should be the case, and we, that's a separate discussion. But you can already see, um, and this is why why Taylor can ha- has some success, like he knows who his best player is, and he knows the situations that he needs to get him the ball. He's said it repeatedly. If you've got Terry one-on-one, you've got to take that shot because he's going to a 50-50 ball for Terry McLaurin is probably a 70-30 ball in favor of, of Washington. Um, there's just a, 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 there's a willingness to work at his craft. He talked about contested balls after the Carolina um, game and said, you know, this used to be a weakness of mine. And what does that tell you? It's yeah. now a strength. I mean, that was is, interesting, that he, part of the story, that he told you that catching contested balls was his weakness at Ohio State. Crazy. Because you would, you would think, like, oh, this guy's probably been, um, been fighting and winning those 50-50 battles, you know, since he was a little kid. So I just think that there's so much that he's already accomplished and his attitude kind of would lead you to believe that he's going to improve on on what he's already accomplished. Um, so, and the numbers would say, okay, yes, he is better than anybody since Monk. Um, I also think the upside would lead us to believe that it's going to be a no-brainer within the next year or so as he continues to develop. And if, again, if he has consistency at quarterback, he, he continues to get into a rhythm with the person that's playing that position. Uh, read the column. It's a good column, and there's a lot of really good information and some some stuff from Terry that's excellent. Um, Barry's column in the post. Um, all right, so that leads into the quarterback. Um, what is your position on Taylor Heineke? I mean, I love watching him play. I think he's getting better. I do not in any way think he's a long-term solution to lead this team consistently into you know deep playoff runs. I, I just feel like and that's not a knock against him. This is a guy that, um, you know, he was out of football uh, a year ago at this time, and he has really capitalized on this opportunity. Um, I think it's fair to say that you love his story and love how he goes about it and simultaneously believe that their long-term solution at quarterback is not currently in the building. And, and until and unless that is solved, then there is a limit on what they can become on a year-to-year basis. Um, they've been limited by it for, you know, 25 years, and until and unless they address it, um, I'll believe that, that they don't, that there is a cap on, on what they can achieve. Yeah, I, um, I, I've said for the last, you know, six months, or since early in the season when we, you know, when all hell broke loose with DEA raids and, you know, emails and the whole thing, because, of course, it's never-ending. You know, there are a couple of like, like the Taylor Heineke conversation is a big one because of the position, Um, but they have the worst owner in professional sports. They don't have a quarterback in a sport that requires that you have one or you really can't win consistently. Um, That's the macro view of the team right now. Like those are the two most important things. And in my view, you know, and I go back to like the Indianapolis example when they drafted Peyton Manning. The Ursays were considered horrendous owners. Now, uh, or, or the older Ursay was. Um, and now they were able to attract Bill Polian as the general manager, but but the drafting of Peyton Manning masked everything that was wrong with that franchise. And I'm not suggesting the Colts were nearly as you know 
awful as Washington's been as an organization. Um, but it was a bad organization. Bidwell, the older Bidwell, not the son who you know went to Georgetown Prep here locally that runs the team now, the older one was considered a disastrous cheap owner. And somehow they got Kurt Warner and they became, became really good and nearly won a Super Bowl. So for me, it's like the only answer and the only way out of this thing, Barry, is to land luckily because it is there's some good fortune involved in the whole quarterback you know landing on the franchise quarterback thing is to land on a franchise quarterback and I have this sense that Ron understands that and they're going to take some big swings in the offseason what do you think they think I you told me what you think what do you think they think well I think it'll it tells you something that they they took a swing for Stafford last yes. off season, right? That 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 it, they didn't land him and and that's understandable. I get it. It was a failed attempt and and obviously Stafford's doing what he's doing with with the Rams, but that's revelatory about what they think and the importance of the position is. I think Ron Rivera has to be quite self-aware that yes, did he coach a team to a Super Bowl? He did. That team went 15 and 1 because Cam Newton had an MVP year uh as uh, a dynamic quarterback that lifted that, you know, they had a good defense and a good tight end and um, all of that, but they, they, they went 15 and one and they reached the Super Bowl because their quarterback played at an elite level. This is not, it's not a mystery. I mean, um, they've got a stopgap who's fun to watch right now and um, has kept them on the fringes of, of keeping them alive for uh, a postseason berth. But I can't imagine that um, Ron Rivera is, getting into his office and thinking, well, I mean, when Taylor is fully developed in 2024, we're, we're really going to be rolling. I just don't think that that's, that's just not a thought that, that he or anybody in that building is having, other than Taylor Heineke probably. I think that's 100% true to, uh, up until two weeks ago, and now I don't know what they think. Like, I, I think that all of their actions spoke to – well, Taylor Heineke and nobody in the building is the guy. You know, you mentioned Stafford. They they looked into so many different uh, quarterbacks. They looked into trading up, and then they settled on Fitzpatrick. And if you believe some of the stories, they may have been interested in Mitch Trubisky just three weeks ago before the trade deadline. But I wonder if there's any um, – well, wait a minute. After the last two games, especially the game he played on Sunday, which was, by the way, his best by far. So I think they have reeled back the idea that when Ron said, "Oh, we gotta we gotta make him be a game manager," I think that's that idea is out the window because he's not at his be- he's at his best when the play breaks down and he uses his legs or he keeps the play alive, like the fourth down play to to Bates that was a really you know I mean, that could have been a disaster and it and the call went right and and um, he made a play. I, I think what they think about the position going forward doesn't have to be fully formed at Thanksgiving 2021. That's right. When they're not, you know, they're not going to trade for Mitch Trubisky now. This guy is in the chair for the rest of the year, and if that ends up with um, a late-season push toward the playoffs because he has taken care of the ball and used his legs to make plays and, and turned in a lot of performances that look like against Tampa Bay or against um, against Carolina, then they might have a, a more serious discussion about what what they need going going forward. If it looks like it looked in the you know a month ago, um, yeah, against Denver or or, uh, or things like that, then 
then maybe the discussion is different. So I, I don't I don't know that it has. They've, they've got three and seven Seattle on Monday night to try to beat. I, I don't think solving. I think solving quarterback for 2022 is super important. I think it's fair for them to not have to wor- not worry about that. You know. Thanksgiving week 2021. That's right. They don't have to worry about it now. They've got seven games left, and I think it's becoming very clear he's going to play the final seven when it may not have been that clear two or three weeks ago. I mean, it's the NFL. Things change literally on a weekly basis. But here's one thing that Tommy and I talked about on the podcast yesterday and I mentioned earlier. And I think it's an interesting part of this conversation. So I think they want to aim higher. They've tried to aim much higher. Clearly their actions have spoken, you know, their position, which is we don't have our franchise quarterback on our roster. With that said, um, what their choices may be limited. There aren't a lot of quarterbacks in free agency next year. You're talking about Matt Ryan, if the if the Falcons cut him, being the biggest prize at 38 years old. He's not going to come here. None of the tradable quarterbacks, Wilson, Rodgers, or Deshaun, they've all made it very clear that they're not coming here. And so the free agent window, you know, the free agent, you know, offering becomes Trubisky and Winston and Tyrod Taylor and Bridgewater. And then if you're in the draft, you know, most people will tell you this isn't a great quarterback draft. And they may, if they win a couple more games, not be in position to draft anybody without trading up to begin with. What I'm driving at is... It's very possible that Taylor Heineke, that they want to aim higher and they don't think he's the future, but that next year he's going to be a big part of the conversation. That's totally true. I mean, there's a, there's a difference between needing to solve your long-term instability at quarterback and <laughs> right. being able to solve it, that's right. right? Like, yeah. you, you can't force it, um, and that's why – you know, in all the speculation of, of what they could have and should have done in the past couple of drafts, and I, I was advocating in 2020 that, you know, if, if you like one of those quarterbacks, if you think that Tua or Justin Herbert it can be the guy, you owe it to yourself to take them at two or try to trade up and, and get Burrow, um, you know, if you think that that person is, is the person. But if you don't think that Justin Fields or, you know, Mac Jones or, or whoever is going to be your quarterback for the next 10 years, don't take them. Don't do it. Don't, don't take Dwayne Haskins because you need a quarterback and he's a quarterback that's available. That sets your program back further. So um, I agree with you, Kevin. It, it all has to go with what their internal evaluation is of the options that are available and how does Heineke develop um, over the remaining seven games of this season, because there's a chance if he does play like he did the last two, that you're saying, well, now he has like 19 starts under his belt. He improved from the bye week through the end of the season to a degree where we're really happy with that level of play. We don't think, you know, the kid from Mississippi or um, the other members of what's, as you said, it might be a weak quarterback draft are our quarterback for 10 years, um, we're going to put a pause on that project. But it has to be based on your own evaluation of the options, and you have to be right in those evaluations. Last one. Uh, how many more games do they win? You know, you you 
you're funny because I promised that I wasn't going to talk about standings and stuff if they beat Carolina because I had declared the season, the competitive portion of the season, over on Halloween night after the loss to Denver. But I always do this anyway, where then I get roped back in to, you know, sort of look at the whole playoff permutations. And I already mentioned that it's very possible they could be sitting in the number seven spot by late Monday night, depending on what else happens this weekend. So how many more wins do they have in them, and what does the rest of the season look like to finish up? I mean, I hate to I wrote this coming out of the game, like, you're exactly right. They, they suck you back in because as bad as they were, and I thought the Denver game was basically unwatchable, um, and as, un, you know, they just got completely blown out in the second half against Kansas City, a Kansas City uh, team that was struggling at, at the time, um, you know, with a terrible defense. I, I just was like, this thing is going in the wrong direction. But now it's not crazy to me that they would go five and, uh, you know, win five more games the rest of the way that gets them to nine um, because there is, the path is there, right? Like, they can beat Seattle. Seattle is struggling. They have them at home. and I forget all the Monday night history. They can beat Seattle. The Raiders are in some form of off-field and on-the-field disarray, coaching change, a terrible accident involving a potentially star receiver who's no longer with the team. They can win in Vegas. That gets them to six, to 500. And then they finish with the five NFC East games that, like, one is against the Giants. If you can't beat the Giants, you, you don't deserve to go to the playoffs. Two are against the Eagles, which, okay, can they split those games? They can probably split the, that game, although Philly's playing better. And then Dallas, you know, there's some health things going on there. Um, they don't look as impervious as they, as they did before. So could they split those games? Yeah, they could split those games. If you get to 9-8 and eight in the NFC, I think you're going to the playoffs, don't you? Yeah, probably. Um, I, I just still, I still don't think they're a good team. Um, I think they. Play, I don't disagree with you. I, I think they played well, uh, really well the last two weeks. And sometimes in the NFL, we have to forget about. Like I, I, I think I s- said it on uh, Monday that you know this Bill Parcells, you are what your record says you are. I, the NFL changes week to week, and the, the bottom line is is that they've actually played like they're a decent team the last two weeks. Now, we have to see whether or not that continues because they weren't a good team, and they were a terrible team, actually. They were a bad football team during that four-game streak. Even even if you thought there were incremental you know, improvements on defense or you know, offensively they were moving the ball, the whole thing. So I still don't think they're a good team, so I don't think they're going to win five more. Um, but – like you said, Seattle looks like they're on the verge of imploding. Washington's now a favorite in that game. They opened as a two-and-a-half-point dog. The Raiders, all hell's broken loose there. Um, and by the way, that might be the biggest Washington home crowd of the year. There may be more people in Vegas to watch the Skins on December 5th or whatever date that is than have been at any of the home games so far. Um, so, uh, you, you've got that going on and then you've got a lot of division games. Personally, I don't think they're as good as Dallas or Philadelphia, but, um, but we'll see. I mean, this is where I give Ron Rivera a lot of credit because, you know, he was able to keep that team together last year. And obviously the division played into them going to the postseason this year, the NFC's bunched up standings will allow somebody at eight and nine or nine and eight, certainly to be a seven seed um, and be a wild card team. And 
Rivera's got a history of not losing his teams in bad in in rough spots. Um, having people kind of believe in him and really kind of just figuring it out by the end of the year. I I would just say this, Kevin, and I don't disagree with you that they were a bad team, and I was very, very close to to writing them off as well. What the last two weeks provide is a blueprint for how they can do it. If they play that way, then that becomes who they are. Then they are that team. They're not two games doesn't do it. But nine would then, you know, and I do think it's a repeatable formula. Heineke takes care of the ball. They run the ball really, really well. The defense is not dominating like we thought it might be, but it also is not laughable like it was, right. particularly on third down through the first half of the season. I, I don't think that there's anything they did the past couple of weeks where you go, whoa, they can't possibly repeat that again. Maybe the ten-and-a-half-minute drive to close the game against the Bucs, you can't always count on doing that. But um, I, I think they've come to a formula that is their formula. It's just a matter of how many times did they draw it out of themselves over the, over the last nine games of the season. I think, or that, whatever it is, I, I think that's season. really well said because it is a formula, and by the way, it's a tried-and-true formula, not to win Super Bowls necessarily, but to have a chance to win games that you're playing in and win, win enough of them to be a playoff team. I would say that you know with seven left, that formula, if they play at that level – they're going to have a chance to win every game, and they're going to have a chance to lose every game, which means four and three would be the best, which would get them to eight, which you know is a possibility um, that eight and nine might get you a seven seed this year. Who knows? Uh, this was fun, as always. Uh, I always enjoy the conversation. I hope you're well. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Read Barry's column on Terry McLaurin. It's a good one. Uh, it really is. And it, it, I, I don't know if it'll make you think the way I thought, which sort of led me down this path of agreeing with him on McLaurin. And to be honest with you, I don't think it's really close in terms of receivers. You know, Henry Ellard was great, you know, um, while he was here for the brief period that he was here. Uh, Pierre and, and Deshaun obviously were part of a pretty prolific offense, which included Jordan Reed when healthy and all three of them were on the field. They were really tough to stop offensively. But Deshaun and, and, and Pierre were not even where Terry is now. You know, and Terry's rising. You know, Terry's borderline top 10 now. I don't think he is top 10, but he's borderline conversation top 10, and he's probably going to be in there next year. You know, I still think, you know, Devontae Adams and DeAndre Hopkins and Tariq Hill and um, Justin Jefferson for sure and Mike Evans and, you know, uh, Cooper Cup right now with the year he's having. I, I think, the, you know, but I, I don't know how many names I just ripped off, but it's probably not 10. It's probably more like seven or eight. And so he's in that conversation. I think Cooper and Lamb and Metcalf and Keenan Allen for sure are, you know, guys that you could debate are better than McLaurin. You could. Um, but he's, you know, he's pointing upwards. Jackson and Garcon were never there. Jackson and Garcon in 2015 and 2016 weren't anywhere near, you know, the level of Antonio Brown or Julio Jones or DeAndre Hopkins or Larry Fitzgerald or, you know, Beckham Jr., actually. Um, Calvin Johnson was still in the league for, I think, both of those years. Maybe not 2016. I forget now. 
Um, Jordan Reed was catching more balls, you know, in 2015 anyway. I think Jordan Reed was, was a gr- one of the great what-ifs in franchise history and was in 2015 and 2016 a top three player at his position. I think it was Gronk, Kelsey, and Jordan Reed as the three best pass catchers, um, pass catching tight ends in the business. Jordan Reed could have been an all-timer, really could have been. He was virtually uncheckable. And to me, a big part of why they were really prolific at times in 15 and 16, certainly in 16. And all of you people that reach out and give me the red zone numbers, I understand that. Um, but they were rarely off the field. I think they punted fewer than any teams in the in any team in the league except for Atlanta in 2016. Anyway, uh, it just got me to thinking. Like McLaurin's really in the conversation of like legitimate, you know, top ten at his position right now and climbing. You know, you can say that, and we 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 certainly could say that about you know uh, Trent Williams when he was here. We can we've said that about Brandon Sheriff when he's here. You know, right now, other than Sheriff and McLaurin and John Allen, there you it's hard to make the case that anybody else is top ten at their position. We thought it would be Chase Young and or Montez Sweat this year, but it hasn't been. And now it won't be. Anyway, uh thanks to Barry. When we come back, Thirty years ago today, nineteen ninety-one, the winning streak came to an end. Also, wanted to give you a quick Thanksgiving Day smell test. We'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, this final segment of the show heading into Thanksgiving Day is brought to you by my bookie. My bookie's got a turkey day opportunity you won't want to miss. It deals with the Cowboys Raiders game tomorrow. The line is seven and a half. If you bet the Cowboys and lay the seven and a half and you lose, or you bet the Raiders and get the seven and a half and you lose, my bookie's offer tomorrow is to refund you up to $250 worth your bet. So if you bet $250 in the game and you lose, you're going to get $250 in a refund. Now you have to use that $250 refund to wager on something else, but this is a no-lose proposition. The first thing you do is go to mybookie.ag or mybookie.com and sign up 
and use my promo code Kevin DC, and they'll double your first deposit all the way up to a thousand bucks. So if you deposit a thousand dollars, you'll end up with two thousand in the account, and then you can use the you know two hundred and fifty of that two thousand to place a no-brainer wager on the game tomorrow. You, if you win, you get the two hundred and fifty bucks. If you lose, you get the two hundred and fifty bucks refunded. Uh, on Friday. They're going to have tons of odds boosts uh, that you'll have a a chance to take advantage of. But this is a great offer right now. And I've told you many times, my bookie has fair lines, fair totals, fair money lines, fair pricing. You're going to get paid. They've got every prop bet, every in-game opportunity you need. Go to MyBookie at MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag and use my promo code, KevinDC. They'll double your first deposit instantly, and you'll get this $250 risk-free bet for tomorrow's Raiders-Cowboys game. Quick smell test, full-fledged smell test on Friday. I like the Bears laying three and the Raiders getting seven and a half. Those are the two smell test picks. I almost gave out Mississippi State, minus the point in the Egg Bowl on Thanksgiving night against Ole Miss. Uh, I'm going to pass on that one. The Bears are thought to be dead in the water. Nagy could get fired. The Lions played the Steelers close and then nearly beat the Browns. I mean, they tied the Steelers, nearly beat the Browns as a 13-point underdog. Believe it or not, the winless Detroit Lions at home on Thanksgiving are the public favorite. I'll go anti-public and take Chicago. And then I like the Raiders because I think there's a lot of thought that the Cowboys bounce back off that loss two weeks ago or three weeks ago now, almost three weeks ago, to the Broncos with a blowout win over the Falcons. And then last week get beat at Arrowhead by the Chiefs. I think there's this expectation that that they will bounce back tomorrow against a reeling Raiders team who, you know, they've lost a bunch of games in a row and they're really really struggling uh, after the loss of their coach, the loss of their receiver with that tragedy, um, with Ruggs. Uh, I like the Raiders plus seven and a half in part because I don't think anybody else will have them. Bears and Raiders tomorrow, full-fledged. Lots of smell test picks, I believe, for the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, games as well. Real quickly on Thanksgiving Day, I just don't have a problem with the Lions continuing to host on Thanksgiving Day. It's a tradition that started in 1934. Uh, It's a tradition that that city embraces. It just doesn't bother me. I know it bothers a lot of people, but they kind of address that when, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years ago, whenever it was, they added the Thursday night Thanksgiving night game. So that gave every team in the league, you know, uh, an opportunity to host a Thanksgiving Day game. I don't think every team likes to host Thanksgiving Day games, but um, it gave a, a third game to the day pro game and uh, created an opportunity for somebody that, other than Detroit and Dallas to host. I definitely don't have an issue at all with Dallas hosting. They've been doing it since 1966. There was an odd period for three years in the mid-70s where Pete Rozelle took the game away from Tech Schramm and the Cowboys and gave it to the Cardinals. The Cardinals were, for whatever reason, a team that Pete Rozelle loved. These were the Don Coriel, Jim Hart, Mel Gray, Terry Metcalf Cardinals with Conrad Dobler, Dan Deerdorf. They took the game away from the Cowboys the year after the most famous Thanksgiving Day game ever, which was the Clint Longley comeback against Washington in 1974 to win the game 24-23. 
Then the Cowboys had the game taken away from them. Now, they, they did play in 76 against the Cardinals. The Cardinals in 75 hosted O.J. Simpson and the Bills and lost 32-14. to By the way, in that game, Jim Braxton, the fullback, and O.J. Simpson, the tailback, combined for 57 carries for 246 yards on the ground. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Uh, the next year, the Cardinals uh, played the Cowboys and lost 19-14. to And then in 77, they hosted the Dolphins and lost 55-14. to Roselle apologized to the Cowboys for taking the game away from them. The Cardinals lost all three, scored 14 points in all three, uh, and the Cowboys had the game back in 1978 where they hosted Washington and won 37-10. Interestingly, that was Washington's last Thanksgiving Day game for 12 years. They didn't play on Thanksgiving against the Cowboys again for 12 years, and then they faced Emmett Smith, Aikman, Irvin, young Cowboy team in 1990 and lost 27-17 to on Thanksgiving Day uh, that year. And then they've played a bunch of times since. Um, the Skins hosted Thanksgiving Day uh, night uh, back in 2017 against the Giants and won 20-10. They've only played the Lions once on Thanksgiving Day and won that in 1973, 20-0. But anyway, I don't have a problem with the Lions and Cowboys being the annual hosts of the early game and the midday, you know, late afternoon game on Thanksgiving Day. Speaking of the Cowboys, 30 years ago today, the Cowboys came into RFK Stadium as a 6-5 and team against 11-0 Washington. This story of the sports world was Washington's win streak, trying to be perfect, trying to match the 72 Dolphins. By going undefeated, they were 11-0. They had outscored their opponents in the previous two games, 97-31. to In games against the Falcons and Steelers coming in to the game 30 years ago today against the Cowboys at RFK Stadium, Mark Rippon had thrown for nearly 800 yards and had thrown for eight touchdowns. Washington was the story of the sports world. I actually said that this morning on radio and somebody corrected me and said Magic Johnson was the story in November 1991 because he announced that he had HIV. Okay, Uh, other than that story, Washington was the sports story uh, at that point in 1991. And they were rolling. They were 12.5 point uh, favorites over the Cowboys who were 6-5. and This was the Jimmy team with Aikman, Irvin, Emmett, etc., Moose Johnston, Novacek, before they had made a playoff game. They would make the playoffs later that year for the first time and then won the Super Bowl the following year. This was a huge game for Jimmy Johnson, and he got after it aggressively. He onside kicked Washington in the first half. He went for three-fourth downs. That was a big deal in 1991. And right before the half in a 7-7 game, Pat Summerall, and John Madden on the call. You know, and here, this is the third time in the first half that the Cowboys are going for it on fourth down. Their choice is to kick a field goal. It would have been a 51-yard field goal. I think they want to get a first down and then maybe go for the field goal. But they're out of timeouts. There is Aikman back to throw it. Going to take a Hail Mary shot. Touchdown! Alvin Harper out of the pack. Down from 34 yards out. Harper got the shot from Aikman. I think Jimmy Johnson. 
Wilson hasn't made one single conservative call today. I thought you try and get the ball, you get out of bounds, you kick a field goal. They think the heck with it. Let's go for the juggler if you're playing here. Take the thing. It's fourth down. The third time in the first half they've gone for the fourth down. Look at this ball up in the air. Number 80, Alvin Harper coming up with it. How can that happen? Right in the middle of five Redskins. And he caught it clean. Usually those things are tipped or you catch them on a rebound. He caught that thing. It wasn't even tipped. Willis for the extra point with Novacek holding in. The Cowboys will go into the dressing room at the half leading 14-7. Harper, four seconds left. So they will have to kick it off. I tell you, that was a beautiful catch. I mean, I don't know that I've seen football like the Cowboys are playing where you come in and play as aggressively as they have. We've had them go for fourth down on three, three times. We've had them get an onside kick. They've pulled out all the stops in this first half. Hail Mary to Alvin Harper, a famous play in that season. Uh, a lot of us remember how the streak came to an end and remember that Hail Mary at the end of the half to Alvin Harper. The Cowboys went on to win the game 24-21. to The big story, of course, was Washington's win streak and their attempt at a perfect season coming to an end. The other big story was Troy Aikman hurt his knee in the game and didn't play again that year. Steve Berline came into the game, uh, led the Cowboys in the second half. Washington really never had a chance. The Cowboys built a 21-7 lead, a 24-14 lead. Washington scored very late, couldn't come up with the onside kick, lost 24-21 and Burline led the Cowboys the rest of the year uh, on what was a five-game winning streak into the playoffs where they beat Chicago, lost to Detroit, uh, and their season came to an end. Washington, of course, at 11-1, was still very much in, in control of the NFC East race. They hadn't clinched the division yet, but they had an opportunity to do that the following week in Los Angeles against the Rams, and that's what we will talk about next week. But 30 years ago today... Dallas 24, Washington 21 at RFK Stadium. The perfect season dream came to a crashing halt. Uh, Jimmy Johnson still calls it one of the most significant games of the early portion of his run in Dallas. Uh, they looked up to Washington. That was the team they needed to beat. Washington and New York, who were better teams than the Cowboys then. Very similar to what George Allen did when he got to Washington in the early 70s. He pointed to the Cowboys and said, we've got to be better than them. We've got to beat them. Well, Jimmy pointed to Washington and said, we've got to beat Washington. And they did it, and uh, they were off uh, and running through the rest of that decade. But there was still a Super Bowl for Washington to go get in 1991. We'll continue next week with the following week's game in Los Angeles against the Rams. All right, uh, that's it for the day. Uh, back on Friday, off tomorrow. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. It's been three years now. It's amazing. We started it in the fall of 2018. I love doing this podcast. Uh, it's much more fun for me, to be honest with you, working with other people. I love doing it with Tommy. I love doing it when Cooley's on. I love 
um, that uh, dynamic. For me, I've always felt much more comfortable working with somebody else. It's a lot easier for starters, uh, but I really enjoy it. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of your support. We wouldn't still be here doing this if we didn't have your support. It's meant everything. This is the future uh, this podcast and, you know, different iterations of the podcast, some sort of video, uh, podcast, some sort of YouTube channel. There's a lot that, um, we've got, uh, in the works and, uh, eventually I think we will get to all of it. Um, but, um, again, I, I wish you the, the happiest of Thanksgivings. I'll be back on Friday. And again, thank you so much for everything. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.